Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Essie Adugin is a brilliant author who calls Victoria, British Columbia home. Her 2011 novel, Half-Blood Blues, is a critically acclaimed masterpiece chronicling the lives of American jazz musicians in Berlin and Paris, just as World War II altered history forever. The book won several accolades and awards, including Canada's prestigious Scotiabank Giller Prize. Essie arguably topped that novel with 2018's remarkable historical epic, Washington Black, which chronicles the saga of a young precocious boy who flees a plantation during the slave trade with an abolitionist who leads him on a fascinating planet-wide quest for knowledge and personal truth. Washington Black also garnered worldwide acclaim, and again, in a rare feat, won Essie the Scotiabank Giller Prize. Essie and I connected recently for a conversation about her life, how she got into writing, and her early inspirations, the connection between great literature and cinema, the music she listened to while writing her most recent works, a dive into the action and genesis of Half-Blood Blues and Washington Black, what's next for her, and more. With the support of listeners like you who subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly pledges at patreon.com slash creative control, plus in-kind support from CFRU 93.3 FM, Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, this is the 463rd episode of Creative Control featuring one of the world's most gifted writers, Essie Adujan, with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Of course, the cart was hard, and it almost killed me up. But just to leave it go, boy, it was my cup. I've got those cold cart blues till I really don't know what to do. Hi, Essie. How are you? Hi, Vish. I'm well. How are you doing? I'm very well. It's I'm very well. We're, uh, I, I'm I shouldn't say I'm very well. I'm doing a thing in February where I try to go mm-hmm. vegan for the month. Oh, okay. I don't have you. Are you a vegetarian? <laughs> have you experimented with anything like that? You know, I was a vegetarian for seven years, but I did eat 
dairy at the time. Like I ate and I ate eggs and and cheese. So it wasn't it wasn't that big of a deal. I couldn't imagine going vegan. I think that would be, <laughs> <laughs> that would be quite a challenge. But well, um, well I was yeah. I was a vegetarian or pescatarian for twenty years. Uh, oh, okay. And then uh, I lapsed once my son. I have two children, and my son turned around three. And then my wife has always eaten meat. And then the idea of having the time and the money to prepare separate meals uh, for mm-hmm. them and for me just went the So I gave in a little bit. And and that was in its way liberating. You said you were a vegetarian for seven years and then you went, did you go, now you eat meat? Is that what happened? Yeah, I do eat meat. And actually now I don't, um, I don't eat dairy because I found out that I'm allergic to dairy, oh. which is something I had no idea about for many years. So, uh, but I do eat meat and... Um, yeah, it seems to be working for me. Do you, find, do you find it liberating mm-hmm. on some level? Ah, uh, no, I don't find it liberating. <laughs> I guess I don't think of it in those terms. Maybe I just, um, <laughs> yeah, I guess I find it satisfying. I'm trying to eat less meat though, just because I've been, yeah, reading about just the environmental effects yes, of absolutely. eating so much meat. So I'm trying to to eat less. Uh, but it, it's kind of hard to get um, some of my family members to eat legumes it's very weird there's this whole (laughs) mental block around legumes (laughs) well i the one of the reasons i'm endeavoring to this with this experiment uh, because i like i say i had a history of vegetarianism in a sense veganism is not that far a stretch from that you just have to Mm -hmm. make your choices but it was an ecological thing and also i just hadn't been feeling well and uh, what i meant by liberating is uh i will say that once i uh, stopped be- being a pescatarian or vegetarian, it felt like I could eat anything and I felt less like a pill, you know, with people saying, right. ah, you didn't make something for me. What? You know, I, I started to feel that <laughs> self-consciousness of like, I can't eat certain things and my kids are eating whatever they want. That's what I meant. So, right, right. So now the veganism is the opposite. Now I'm very careful and I'm trying to stick to it. I'm trying to keep a, a food journal going and all these sorts of things. So it's, uh, when I say I'm okay, I'm this has just started. Where as we're speaking, it's only a few. It's a what a week into February, and I'm still okay. grappling with this. Anyway, my enough yeah. about me. I just wondered. If, it sounds like <laughs> you have some experience with what I'm going through. The transition. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I discovered I was allergic to dairy and some grain and all of this. So that's been a challenge. But I feel like you know I'm living in kind of the right place to be fussy about these kinds of things because everybody has some kind of food fussiness, it seems, yes. like on the West Coast. So people are used to kind of making substitutions. And yeah, I don't I don't feel like so much of a, a pill. Right. Yeah, it just went yeah. from a pride. I was proud of my substitutions. I was proud. <laughs> and then it went from like, oh, I got to, it's a pain on some level. But now I'm back to feeling that pride again. Like I'm doing okay with it. You mentioned the... Oh, that's good. Yeah, thank you. You mentioned you're on the West Coast. Where in the world are you today? I'm in Victoria. Uh, on Vancouver Islands. I've lived here for about 20 years on and off. Nice. Yeah. 20 years. And where are you from originally? I'm from Calgary. Oh, you're from Calgary. Okay, cool. My yeah, wife my wife is this. my wife is from Edmonton, so I've I spend a fair amount of time in that you know, that's the other thing. You go to Alberta for Christmas, that it's a meatapalooza. You have to <laughs> there's so much <laughs> meat. Did you eat a lot of meat in Calgary? I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, I guess that's on offer quite a bit, especially around like stampede time and stuff like that. Yeah. That's, yeah, yeah that... I guess it was a pretty red meat heavy childhood. Right. And then you moved to Victoria. Why? Uh, I went to the University of Victoria to study writing. Okay. Uh, when I was 17. So, yeah. 
It's a good place. It's a nice place. I've been to Victoria a few times. I, I, it has a vibe. Are you aware of the vibe, or are you immune to the vibe that I might How be speaking? How would you characterize of? the vibe? I'm kind of I curious. Well, I've had a couple of weird incidents in. Well, it seems uh, to have older an older population, an older demographic. <gasps> Yeah, yeah. So it's referred to, I don't know if it's still referred to like this, but certainly when I first moved here, uh, they called it the home of the newlywed and the nearly dead. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, that's, and that's I, about I think, right. Yeah, I think that's still the vibe. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, it's a good place to retire because the climate is, is lovely and you can sort of do stuff outside year round. And, um, and then you've got the university, which has just tons of people coming from other provinces and things like that. So it's, yeah, there's like a really lively young population, I guess, mm -hmm. in their 20s. And then a lot of people over 65 kind of thing. Yeah, I guess it's yeah. like, it sounds, when you put it that way, it's basically like anywhere else. <coughs> but I, one of the first times I was there, I went to a concert and it had a curfew. And I didn't understand like a, yes. an early <laughs> curfew too. Like it was a rock band from Chicago was there and I was excited to see them and they were told they had to stop at a certain time, and I just couldn't understand that. Uh, so yes, there's there's a lot of that in terms of you know clubs having to be closed at a certain time, and if they're not, then you know there's a real fight to to have them close earlier. It's it's very that always bothered me when I was younger. Yeah, that does not yeah. sound like a fun place, does it? <laughs> but you you're enjoying it. You know, I enjoy it. It's uh. I'm old now. I don't do much clapping. You know, it doesn't affect me. <laughs> you, you have you have nicely aged into living into living in Victoria, is what you're saying. <laughs> I guess so. You know, I live in a part of the city that's, um, I think, it's the fastest growing part of, uh, I, I guess, place in BC in terms of uh, people moving out here and houses being built, and it's a lot of, I guess, people my age, yeah, like sort of people with young families and. And so um, that's my milieu. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. All right. No, yeah, I, I didn't mean to. This was not an interrogation about your happiness. I feel <laughs> you sound like you're centered and happy there. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I'm uh, fine you, here. You, you, mentioned, yeah, you, you mentioned the university and going there for creative writing. And before, I, I, we we're going to talk about at least your latest uh, novel, Washington Black, which I just think is stunning, if I might say. Uh, from uh, over the phone line here, I just unbelievable, I, unbelievable book, Thank if you. I might say. And I, I mean, you don't need to hear this from me. You just won the Giller Prize. You're winning. You win all sorts of awards. You know you're good, right? You know you're kind of good at this at this point. I would think. <laughs> Can you admit that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's awkward. It's an awkward thing to admit, isn't it's it? It's awkward because, and I think with every book, you're learning how to write that particular book. So ah, that's you don't really. Feel good at that book while you're writing it. It's like a process of feeling your way through it. So, hmm. um, but yeah, I guess I've been doing it long enough that I've learned a few tricks. I'll you have it, no, I, I, yeah. yeah, it's it's it's, and I mean, Half Blood Blues as well. I mean, these are the two works of yours that I'm most <coughs> familiar with, and I just find them stunning. And I feel uh, interrelated on some level, if I might say, and maybe we'll get into that. But I want to uh, stop myself and go back to where I was uh, first going with this question, which is you went to, the, uh, is, is it the University of Victoria? Is that the name of the school? Yeah, that's right. Right. So you went to that school for creative writing. Uh, do you recall where the spark to get into writing 
kind of came from uh, when you were a, a younger version of yourself, before you aged into the right age to live in Victoria, when you were <laughs> <laughs> presumably a teenager uh, or, or what, have, what have you. When, when did you start to, to explore writing in your uh, personal expression? I guess I was maybe about 13 when I, you know, I'd always been a big reader. Like as a child, I'd kind of read everything and my parents were very, I guess in retrospect, it seems like they were, this was very beneficial that they didn't really censor um, what we were reading. We kind of just took out whatever we wanted from the library. Hmm. So I would read and read and read. And then I guess around 13, I started to jot things down and you know, just like terrible poetry that I really hope I've gotten rid of. <laughs> Nobody takes this up. Uh, just like horrible stuff. But I really thought, okay, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to write. I'd like to do that. Uh, but I didn't really think of it as something that you could do as a career until I was graduating from high school and had to figure out what I was going to study at school. And then I had a teacher who recommended that program. Uh, and then I applied and, and got in. Okay. So I did I did my undergraduate degree there, and then I went on to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore for my master's. I see. Okay. So mm. when you you say you were reading when you were thirteen, were a, a, a voracious reader uh, in your teens, mm-hmm. and that your your parents uh, didn't censor um, uh, you on some yeah. level in terms of what you had access to. Were there particular authors or books? that spoke to you, things you, people you uh, read, uh, you know, their canon, if you will, or, or, or books you reread because you found them uh, fascinating or inspiring. Does anything come to mind? When I was like 10, 11, 12, I was actually reading like B.C. Andrews, mm-hmm. which is pretty traumatizing. Like, I don't think that's maybe the right age to read B.C. Andrews. Uh, but, but that was fascinating. And I think obviously there's also this illicit pleasure uh, in being able to read that kind of stuff and nobody prying it from my fingers and yeah and so i that stayed with me even though i recognize that that's not you know great literature or anything like that uh but you know vc andrews um dean coots these kinds of writers okay uh but i was also reading you know i read jd salinger um i used to reread catcher in the rye um every year or every time i got sick i just found it really comforting um and then when i was a little bit older like late teens I started reading uh, The Russians so I read Crime and Punishment uh, because somebody had recommended it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then I kind of went on and started reading um, uh, Tolstoy so I read Anna Karenina and this was all really eye-opening for me I just was blown away yeah, eye-opening in, in in what particular sense I'm just curious if you can expand upon that because that's you know you you talk about um uh, reading is uh, for a lot of people a kind of escapism um and uh, mm-hmm. you know it it takes you away and, and you enter a new world but for you it was uh, world changing in that uh, you mentioned earlier you know i didn't think of this as a something you could do as a career uh but at some point that struck you that maybe it was possible so on some level it was escapism on some level it was a route a career route for you and i find that kind of Interesting. I don't know. Can you expand upon that? Was there was was there a particular uh, time in your life where you're like, you know what, I can do this. Uh, these people that I admire have done this and made a name for themselves and made a living. I I'm going to try to do this. I think I can do this. Yeah, I think I think you hope you can do it more than you think that you're qualified to do it. But um, I just remember reading like Crime and Punishment, and especially reading Anna Karenina. That one in particular. 
um, you have this idea of them before you, you know, you actually read the work, like that this is like some very stuffy, you know, sort of very high art kind of uh, work that's not at all going to speak to you, that it's it's going to be an accomplishment to read these books rather than, you know, that you're actually going to enjoy them. Yeah, yeah. But I think I was astonished to read Anna Karenina and see just how much these people, like, people haven't changed. And that these people were very, uh, they were very warm and alive and they came off the page. And and that, you know, the way Tolstoy writes women is, is uh, he sort of understood that there was fundamentally, uh, intellectually, that there's, you know, maybe not such a huge gap between the way men and women think, although mm. there are differences. Uh, and so he just imbued them with such life and and richness and the way he writes children again like I, I just was blown away by the particularity of the detail yeah, and yeah. the familiarity of the the life experiences and and the way everything was so I mean you're reading in translation but it's you know so eloquently expressed and it feels like he probably put a lot of attention uh, to detail like every single sentence uh, just seemed you know, beautifully thought out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, you just, you want to, I don't know, as somebody who read widely, I just, I guess, yeah, something was turned on and I just thought I want to, I want to try to do that and I hope I can be good at that. And, yeah. and so that's, you know, that's where things started for me at least. I want to put, uh, or rather, I want to apologize again for putting you on the spot earlier by telling you that you are, unsa you know, just a great person and that uh, obviously you're better than everyone else. I didn't mean to put it that way. You know what oh, I mean? No. <laughs> no, I know. I, I, I took it for a compliment. So, no, well, it's, just, it's an awkward thing to, to, to have to answer to, I'm sure. But uh, no one's ever told me I'm the best at anything. So that's why I was like, what? that must be nice to know that you might be, you might be consistently with each work people are like this is the best work that has come out over the last 12 months that must be that must affect you in some way that's all i didn't mean to now i'm making it more awkward by uh, no no more no. compliments and thank you for the compliment <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think it's it's lovely yeah well i i wonder we've talked about some of your literary influences as i read your works uh, I can't help but think of other mediums, uh, particularly in the realm of kind of action adventure. There's a there's a very um, uh, interesting interplay between uh, amazing character study and, and and narrative sophistication. But I also there all there's a suspenseful aspect to your work. Uh, there is a often travel involved in your work, often searching for something. Uh, and trying to resolve interpersonal issues among other issues, and I'm just curious mm -hmm. if if you are inspired by any other mediums, whether it be uh, film might be the obvious one uh, that I'm film or or television or something like that. Uh, are there filmmakers? Are there or musicians even? I mean, when we get into the realm of Half Blood Blues, I, th that's there as well. Uh, and there's science obviously in Washington Black, but yeah, I'm just curious. Is there any other aspect of creative expression that maybe inspires you in your work as a writer? Yeah. Um, you know, I think if I'm inspired by, in terms of cinema, if I'm inspired by it, I think it's all very indirect. Like, I, I don't think I could point to any particular films that I would say were, were very inspirational. Yeah. Um, definitely inspired by, by books. Uh, this is, this is my main my main mode of inspiration, I guess, is, is especially nonfiction books. Like when you read about something that that's just so fascinating and, and you think, well, maybe this is something that could be 
you know, brought to life in, in a work of fiction. I could delve into this. I can blow it up. I can, yeah, you know, create yeah. scenes around it. Um, that's big. And in terms of music, I'm, I'm somebody who used to require complete silence when I was working. Like it would just bother me if somebody coughed in the next room, <laughs> that kind of thing. But, but now it's, you know, since writing Half Blood Blues or while I was working on it, I was listening to music like constantly. Oh, uh, there was okay. always something on. I feel like that book was written to, you know, to a very particular soundtrack. Uh, and same with Washington Black. Like I always had music on and, um, and this kind of fed into the writing of it. It also helps you focus. Was it was it music that might be related to the uh, themes or storylines in any way? I mean, Half the Blues is a yeah. jazz-oriented uh, story. Washington Black, yeah. I don't necessarily, I can't point to uh, music per se in terms of the way it's depicted in the book. I, 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 maybe I'm blanking on something, but yeah, is there something that, uh, is, there, is there a connection between what you wrote and, and the music you were listening to for both? Uh, certainly for Half-Blood Blues, I was listening to a lot of jazz and a lot of blues. I listened to a lot of Miles Davis and obviously Louis Armstrong, who appears as a character in the book. Um, you know, I listened to a lot of Ella Fitzgerald, like just, you know, and Thelonious Monk for the experimentalism. Yeah. And yeah, I just listened to to tons and it was it just fed right into the, the book. And for Washington Black, you know, you would never... You would never guess. Like I listened to quite a bit of. I've listened to Bjork. Oh, a lot. Yeah, there were just uh, some particular albums that just had this kind of um, barren landscape sound to them. If right. I could put it that way. Yeah. That just seemed so fitting and just felt so cold and and just got very into that and you know things like Radiohead and and such. Um, I see things that are stark, else. stark but affecting. Yeah, there. <laughs> That's a good way of summing summing yeah. it up. Yeah. Stark but affecting. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I can I can hear that in the in the landscape of the book now that you mention it. I didn't mean to, uh, and I don't mean to harp on the connection between um, cinema and literature, but it occurs to me. I've asked uh, authors about this uh, on the show before, and in some cases, uh, they're in the midst of having their novels or their writing optioned into TV shows, into movies. And the, mm -hmm. one of the reasons I ask you this is because you know. Films are written. Uh, they are based mm -hmm. on film scripts. They have a very literary aspect to them. And so I, that's one of the, there's a connection. That, and when I read your books, I, I, I like the idea that I'm, it's all occurring in my imagination. Like everything that's I'm reading, I'm picturing, I, I can picture the characters. I, I know in my head they look a certain way and I like that it's left to my imagination. Do you have mm -hmm. any uh, resistance to uh, this notion of having your works adapted into like a, a fixed static film, because for some people they lose the book that the book is left behind because the the film has taken over the story on some level and taken over and and when when that happens people then read the book and they all they can picture is what happened in the film. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I just wonder, do you have any? Uh, I just I'm curious. I, maybe you've never even thought about this, but uh, is that something that occurs to you when you're? In in your own work, uh, uh, the book being sacred and everything else uh, uh, that might come after is sort of a whatever, it's not of interest to you? You know, I think that screenwriting and, and cinema, like that's its own beast. And so if somebody were to adapt your work, I think, at least in my thinking, uh, you're kind of relinquishing something there. Like Absolutely, yeah. It's It becomes, you know, whatever 
is produced at the end of that process is just a different piece of art uh, to my thinking. Um, like it might share the same title or whatever, but it's its, its own thing. Uh, and it's probably a process that you shouldn't interfere with uh, too steadily. Like this is somebody else's vision yeah. kind of based on your work. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I see what you're saying about maybe that becoming the main narrative uh, around your story, but it's nothing I've had to, certainly nothing that I've I had to deal with myself uh, up that, to this point. That's, so a, I, I that's really... fascinating. I, I would think people would be clamoring to turn these stories into whatever, you know, series or a film or something. Yeah. Um, well, Half-Blood Blues has been optioned. I think it's on its second option. Um, but nothing has been made. Yeah. You know, so it's, yeah. so I, you know, I haven't had to deal with these, I guess, these quandaries head on. But it's, to me, it just feels like it's a different beast it's it's its own thing. It's the vision of of the screenwriter and the director, and and that it's um it's something divorced from what you've done. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's probably very interesting for people to compare the two and and to have a dialogue about how they're different and which they preferred. And I always find that fascinating, like reading the book after I've watched the film, yeah, yeah. vice versa. And but it, it is true that you do kind of get a face in your head of the actor and, and it's hard to shake that, but yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's just, it's all, it's, I guess that's a risk. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to dig into Washington black a little bit with you. And I thought uh, for the sake of people who haven't read the book yet, uh, if, uh, and, and also because I want to be, I'm always wary of, of spoiling a book when I speak with authors on the show. Can you do me uh, and our listeners a, a favor and sort of summarize this book to the best of your ability, the, the plot and, and maybe uh, some of the characters, just so we, we have it in your words. Sure. So Washington Black is a novel set uh, in the 1830s, and it follows six years in the life of a young field slave called George Washington Black, uh, who's nicknamed Wash uh, in the text. And um, Wash, he's 11 or 12 years old, the outset of the story. Uh, he's not entirely sure of his age. But he is, you know, he's somebody who has been a field slave most of his life. He's known no other life but one of, of hardship and brutality. And so he's utterly surprised to one day find himself taken to live in the quarters of his new master's brother. Mm -hmm. And this man is called Christopher Wilde. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Uh, nicknamed Titch. 
Uh, and it's through um, Titch removing Wash from his fieldwork uh, and teaching him how to read and how to draw uh, that Wash starts to come into himself, uh, come into his own as uh, as a person. Like he starts to feel his first stirrings of personhood and and he starts to recognize that he's gifted and this is obviously something that utterly transforms his life mm-hmm. and and Titch's life as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is a it is a story set in the in the slave trade and Titch is an abolitionist that it should be said. Yes. So right. so Titch Wild is um he's totally unlike uh, any other white man that that Wash has known up until that point. He's it's certainly the opposite of his brother as well. Uh, yeah, exactly. So he's He's an inventor, he's an illustrator, he's a naturalist, but he's also an abolitionist. Right. And this is obviously the thing that um, that hugely changes the course the course of Wash's life. Yeah, and as I alluded to earlier, this becomes this kind of action adventure type of uh, quest uh, for both of them uh, on some level. They travel. There, there's. Uh, they must flee together. Uh, they are each searching for people uh, in the end. W- where did this story sort of come from for you? What were you uh, were you already invested in these kinds of stories, stories of the slave trade? Uh, I'm just curious how you conjured this. If if you can articulate that, I know it can be difficult, but uh, can you pinpoint where this story sort of came from, if you will? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I'm not somebody who was deeply read or had you know, was obsessed with stories of the slave trade. Um, But what happened was I came across a reference to a man called Andrew Bogle. So I don't know if you know much about the Tichborne claimant trial. Uh, It doesn't sound, I've I've read a lot about this history, but I don't think that comes to, I mean, 20 years ago when I was in university, I took (laughs) many such courses, but that's not coming to mind at the moment. Sure. So um, the Tichborne claimant affair was uh, like this really infamous series of criminal trials that took place in England from about, you know, sometime in the 1860s until sometime in the 1880s. And it was a huge cause célèbre, which sort of pitted the the gentry against the working class. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it centered around the disappearance of a young man called Roger Tichborne. And he was this bon vivant who was basically thinking he was going to do a world tour, uh, and then he was shipwrecked uh, off the coast of Argentina. Uh, But his mother refused to believe that he had died, because she was one of these... She was very attached to her son. She was, like, unnaturally attached to her son, uh, and just, you know, refused to believe that he perished. So she consulted a clairvoyant uh, who told her that Roger was alive and well, and that she just had to find him. She just had to send out some letters and he would respond. Right. And so she did this. She sent out letters all around the world um, and got a response from Australia, from a town called Wagga Wagga. Uh, and it, it came from a man called Tom Castro, but he basically said that that was an alias uh, and that he was Roger and, you know, he was sorry that he had stayed away so long, but that, you know, and that he had been working as a butcher uh, in a small Australian town, but that he was happy to come back and uh, take up the mantle uh, of the family estates and assume his inheritance. I see. Okay, so this is, this is a heavy <laughs> influence on uh, the characterizations in your book. 
Yeah. So, um, you know, she immediately, his mother immediately believed that this was him. Uh, but, you know, she had like some modicum of sense rattling around up there. And she she wanted to send an emissary out to this town uh, to make the identification. And just, you know, by chance, like six months before, their family servant, who was a man called Andrew Bogle, had retired to Sydney. And so she sent a letter to him asking him to go to go to Wagga Wagga and make the identification. Right. And Andrew Bogle was, he had been in the family service, as I said, for four decades. Uh, but he was an ex-slave who had been stolen off a plantation in the Caribbean by a member of the Tichborne household uh, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. had been visiting one afternoon and uh, for a few weeks and I guess had taken a liking to this slave boy and, and decided to take him to England. Uh, and so I thought I was going to do the whole Tichborne story through the eyes of Andrew Bogle. Uh, but then I realized I was maybe struggling with, you know, this this litigation that went on for nearly 30 years. Um, it just seemed unwieldy and the story was just all over the place. And I realized I was much more interested in the mindset and the psychology of somebody who was like Bogle, um, not Bogle himself, but somebody like him, mm-hmm. who was, would have had, you know, his thinking would have been that he was born on this plantation, he would probably die on this plantation and probably under unnatural circumstances and that his life was just going to look, you know, be one of, of great brutality uh, until he died prematurely. Right. Uh, and so for him to be wrenched out of that and then, you know, taken into worlds that were so entirely unlike everything that he'd known, uh, that was what I was interested in. And then that ended up being the the impetus for the book. Well, that's fascinating. That's, that's utterly fascinating to me. There's also uh, a strain of brutality in your book uh, that is kind of jaw-dropping uh the the skirmishes mm-hmm. uh the 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 violence that i the violence that's depicted even on the on the plantation i mean knowing mm-hmm. that history the way i do i i wasn't surprised but it's still jarring um that was that new for you to explore that uh, i mean it, <coughs> it happened a little bit in half-blood blues too when people f- fight in your works things get messy. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm curious, is that, are these things you, uh, is that sort of, a, is that violence, depicting that violence, is that a fun exercise for you? Do you have to uh, gear yourself up no, to like get into that section and be like, oh man, here we go. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's definitely not fun. <laughs> I think, um, you know, I think for both novels, Half the Blues was set obviously in the period preceding the Second World War. Uh, and then this one, of course, um, set uh, set during slavery. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are moments of violence that you just, you can't shy away from. You have to depict them. Yeah. Um, it's, especially with something like Washington Black, I mean, I would have preferred not to have opened the book uh, with scenes of great violence. Like, if you think about it just on a, a writing level in terms of attracting readers. I mean, this is something that's enormously uh, risky. Uh, yes, there's, guess, there's like from the, an aesthetic perspective, the, because people yeah. can just decide to stop reading. You have to, you know, 
they have to put their trust in you. Yes. But it was really important for me to, you know, as I started reading about uh, how slavery manifested uh, in the Caribbean and what this young man's life would have looked like, like it was really important for me to depict those details, frankly, and, and also to get them right, like not to invent uh, cruelties because that was totally unnecessary. I mean, the cruelties themselves were already so, um, uh, you know, just just terrible. Yeah. And I felt like to honor those lives, it was important to depict them as they were, but also to, yeah, to, to depict them, period. Like not to shy away, not to try yes. and, yeah. um, you know, and, and sort of gloss over them. Um, the, yeah, the furthest thing from sugar-coated. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and I... This the, the the way the I, I mentioned earlier that I see a through line between Half Blood Blues and Washington Black. I, has this been brought to your attention in any way uh, already? I mean, is, I mean, obviously you're the common denominator here, but in terms of these bo- books both being kind of recollections of the past, having these fraught relationships. Uh, people searching for each other on some level, searching for for people for over, <coughs> over unresolved issues regarding their relationships, and 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 also kind of thinking about their, the these people that were very uh, important to them during formative moments in their lives. I mean, th- those kinds of things uh, echo between the books for me. Has that occurred to you at all? Um, no, I I like the parallels that you're drawing because people do say oh yes I, I see a parallel but but they never talk about it in terms of of what you've just said like this idea of these unresolved relationships and somebody you know searching for somebody else and and that sense of of yearning and, and desire for closure yeah like I haven't heard that before that's new and I like that and I think that's absolutely right well I, I also can't help but think of these books because they're both period pieces and mm-hmm. I wonder how they relate to both you and and how you view the world, and also just our current uh, sort of communication landscape. On some level, these are books that are uh, the action is kind of set uh, into place by dispatches uh, from afar, uh, and, and ways of communicating that some of us can't even fathom now because it's so we are so quick to communicate with one another. We learn things so quickly, and in Washington mm-hmm. Black, I mean you know, many, many miles are traveled and information gets around still. (laughs) And uh, Mm -hmm. I I find that kind of fascinating in itself. Was your decision to kind of contemplate the way we used to be uh, as people uh, in terms of how we are now, did that come into play at all? It's very fascinating that we communicated this way and that information got around in such ways. Yeah, I guess... I guess not in terms of the circulation of information. That wasn't that wasn't maybe what I had in mind. Yeah. But you know, I think I think when you set out to do at least for me, when I set out to do a historical piece, I'm not necessarily looking at the ways in which um you know, it speaks to what's going on in our current climate. Um you know, that's not at least with these last two novels that hasn't been the impetus, but certainly when you know you're getting to the last drafts, you're sort of noticing things, or, or you know, early readers are pointing things out, and and um, yeah, I just 
I, I can see that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, there, are, there are sort of things being enacted in these books that are just, yeah, that, that I guess maybe do reflect certain things in the climate. I mean, we're still dealing with, with grave racial injustice and, and racial inequality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and in the case of somebody like Tana and Washington Black, uh, gender inequality. Yes. That, you know, Washington is never going to be recognized for his his work, but neither will she. I mean, she's somebody who's obviously devoted um, all of her adult life to to helping her father with what he does. But I mean, she'll never she'll never get that recognition. Yes, her father um, is uh, just for people who haven't read it is, is basically well. How would you describe him? I don't want to mischaracterize his vocation, but he's he's a scientist. Yeah, yeah, he's a marine zoologist, right. which is what we would call like a marine biologist now. Right, right. So yeah. you've you've got these in Washington Black and in Half Blood Blues. You have these characters who are, uh, in terms of skill, for the most part, they are at the top toppermost of their fields, which I find interesting, but still not. Uh, you know, still persecuted. Um, you know, they are precocious, uh, but that's not recognized, particularly by uh, white people. And that's, I mean, I understand where you're coming from with that. But that I, I will say also that the diction in Washington Black was fascinating. I found myself writing emails in the style of your book uh, <laughs> and, and and saying, you know, Waterhouse. I, I couldn't help it. I didn't, I, I don't know why. Or is, no, that's not what it's called. What's the name of a bathroom? That's not. I, I've said it wrong. Oh, like a water closet. Water closet. That's right. I don't yeah. know why I said water house. That's weird. Although, <laughs> so that's that. That must have been on some level, kind of stylistically, kind of fun for you to kind oh, of yeah. employ this kind of diction in your work. Oh, completely. Yeah. And with half the blues as well. Like it's just there's a point at which the writing starts. You know, stops being. You know, like you're finding your, you're muddling your way through and it's kind of hard. Uh, and there's this point where it becomes just easy and like play and you, you know, exactly how that character would express himself. Yeah. Uh, and so it was like such a joy to write in, in both of the voice, those voices, but especially, you know, having just written Washington Black, like it was just so much fun to play with this 19th century diction and yeah voice and it's hard to let go of like <laughs> I'm trying to move into something else that's <laughs> absolutely you know not set in that era and it's it's so hard to shake that uh but I, you know i'll need an exorcism or something yeah no i i like i say i found it myself i was writing a press release or something for something and i couldn't help but it i wondered what the media might be thinking uh when i was writing <laughs> in such a style but one of the things you i appreciate that you um appreciate that i recognize this parallel between these two books and i i have kind of a personal question for you because i do mm -hmm. think in both of these books uh you you <laughs> seem fascinated by the nature of familial friendship, um, you know, this notion of really having a close-knit kinship with someone who isn't necessarily your blood. And I, mm -hmm. is that something you relate to on some level uh, in your own life? or Because I've seen it happen now twice, uh, where these characters are uh, bonded with someone, uh, in both cases, for better or for worse, uh, that they're, they're not their family, but they feel as close to family as they possibly could to someone do you relate to that? Yeah. I mean, there's something about, um, especially like really long-term friendships um, where, I mean, that is like blood in a lot of ways. Like that's, it, it might as well be your blood. It might as well be your family um, yeah. where this person is, you've known them for so long and you've been through so much with them and it's been up and down and, 
and you would almost forgive anything and and you understand that you know they they accept you as you are uh, with all of your foibles and that it's a, a kind of lifelong thing yeah and i think you know relationships like sid and and chip uh, and half blood blues that that's something where you know neither of them seem to be particularly bonded to their families. I mean, they don't talk about their birth families at all. We don't know yes, yes. where they've come from. Yes. Um, I mean, Sid gets into it a tiny bit, but you get the sense he, you know, he doesn't have a brother he's close to or anything like that. He's quite alone yeah. uh, at the end of his life. Uh, and he's been married, you know, several times and none of them have stuck. And, and, you know, you get the sense that he's, he hasn't spoken to those wives in years. And so, you know, the only person who's been a constant in his life since he was really a boy, because they've known each other since they were, you know, 10 or something, yeah. is this man who is, you know, Chip, who's awful. Like, he's really awful. Yes, yes, exactly. But he's he's who Sid has. And and you just know that these men will will be together and, and you know, be each other's supports and, and be there for each other, uh, you know, until one of them dies. And that's just what what it is to have, you know, a very deep friendship that goes over several decades. Yeah, and it's particularly touching between Wash and Titch as well, and Wash and Black, like this this bond this and this sense of loss when they are apart. Uh, it's remarkable. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> well, you're welcome. That, that one was a bit more fraught just because of the the huge and power imbalance yes. between that dynamic. So, yeah. so that was a lot more um, of a ticklish thing to write. Yeah. Um, you know, not to have Titch come across as as the great white savior and have this be like a palatable thing um, because it it wouldn't be. Um, yeah, just uh, there's such a huge power imbalance that that I really felt like that had to be done so delicately. Yeah. No, and, and you've done it wonderfully. I hope people will read uh, Washington Black, uh, both books, Half Blood Blues and Washington Black. And I appreciate you fielding questions about both because I just had this hypothesis that they might seem connected. They were connected to me, and uh, they seem connected on some level. Beyond you, your writing, I feel like there's something going on. I, I just appreciate your work so far, if I might say. <laughs> well, no, thank you. Thank you so much. So we've talked about these two different period that you've covered uh, in these respective works. Do you have a sense of where you might be going next, uh, what the next work might be, and and possibly what realm or era you might explore? Um, I have a general idea of what it is I'd like to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't like to talk about work that I, yeah. I haven't written yet, just because I know if I talk about it, I won't write it. Yeah. Um, but definitely something that's not so deeply historical. Like, I feel like I've just gone, you know, my first novel was set in the 60s and then, you know, Half Blood Blues was set in, in the 30s and 40s. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, and, this and one the, goes the, back even further. It's like, where yeah. am I going to end up? Yeah, exactly. Um, but, um, yeah, so something, uh, you know, that's probably still a bit historical, mm-hmm. just because I seem to be a writer who's not, um, I guess, into tackling the moment, or I, I find it hard to kind of a grapple with our like ever changing now like it, it, I, things I, are so I moving did, so quickly yeah i don't i didn't articulate it very well but i do feel like in that impulse you are grappling with now 
not necessarily by rejecting it, but I see a connection between the way you, uh, the the stories you've written and and how things used to be, and 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 how I just couldn't help but think of now. Like, can you imagine no, going like the the seafaring adventures and the and whatever you might like? I, this is just things that are occurring that just couldn't help. I couldn't help but think of well, how would we do that now? <laughs> like, right. uh, whether it'd be easier or not, like how would we find someone? How would we uh, send a notice that you know someone had died or something like that? It's just fascinating. I I couldn't help. I and I feel like that might be inherent within your impulse to write uh, about seemingly another time. Yeah, I think that that's I think that that's absolutely right. I think that maybe delving into historical this the particular historical events that I've written about, it's it's a way of writing about the now like I guess maybe discussing some of the same strains that are yeah. are still continuing or or really highlighting how things have changed. Uh but I'm doing it through what for me is like a closed story. Like we know how that ended, <laughs> you know. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. 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 Historically, so it just, yeah. It, yeah, it feels like I can grapple with that, you know, a lot easier than than trying to write about, you know, say like the Trump presidency or something like this would be. This is something that changes sort of by the minute, and yeah. just this moment feels really hard to get a handle on. So, yeah. Well, it, it does, like I, like you said, and uh, and and as I tried to articulate earlier, I do feel like there's echoes of uh, of these kinds of histories in the present moment, and I think that that comes through. Um, if people want to learn more about you, I guess online, uh, where would you send them? Do you have a, a site or a social media presence or anything like that? I don't. No, you have I, nothing. I think I'm a bit of a ghost. No, I don't have a website, and I don't. I don't, you know, I'm not on anything. <laughs> is... I, I have a Facebook page, but it's it's run by somebody else. Okay. But if they wanted to leave me a note, I guess I would direct them to that Facebook page. Um, and I'm, they're constantly updating it. So maybe that, maybe the Facebook page would be the place to start. And that's just under your name? That's just under my name. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, I appreciate this time very much. Uh, and I, 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 I hope this was, uh, uh, I don't know fun for you. Oh, well, <laughs> but, it was great. Yeah. And I, I do wish you the best of luck with uh, with everything going forward. And, and thanks again for the time. Oh, thank you so much, Fish. Special thanks once again to Essie Adujan for appearing on this, the 463rd episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and available on all podcast platforms, all of them, every single one, I think. It's also on things you may not expect. Spotify, YouTube, Audio Boom. It's everywhere. It seems to be everywhere. If you can't find an episode that you're looking for, that you, you've heard about it, but you can't find it on any of the things, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my regularly scheduled newsletter, please visit my website, vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at vishcreative, or follow me at vishkana. You can listen to a radio show version of Creative Control on Wednesdays at noon Eastern Standard Time. Around the world at CFRU.ca or on an actual radio at 93.3 FM if you're in or near Guelph. Also, please visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly uh, donation to keep this podcast going. It's getting to the point where I could really use uh, these uh, donations to keep the show going and to, to feed myself and my family. So please, patreon.com slash creative control to make a, a flexible monthly donation if everyone who liked the show on social media and listened to the show pledged two dollars 
I'd be fine. So think about think about that. If you could, if you and your friends all pledge two dollars, eh, the show's doing just great. So again, patreon.com slash creative control. Thank you very much to Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, Planet Bean Coffee, and Granddad's Donuts for their in-kind support for this show. Thank you also to Jim Guthrie uh, for his in-kind support of the show. He lets me use a song of his. The rest is yet to come each and every week. Go to jimguthrie.org to learn more about Jim. And that's it. Thank you very much for listening to this show. I enjoyed speaking with Essie very much. These books are incredible. I really, they really are. I hope we put that. I put that across to you during the course of this interview. I think I may have overflattered her, and it was embarrassing for her, maybe. But it's unbelievable writing. These books are great. So check out Essie and her books. And thank you for listening. And that's it. I have to go. Bye for now. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.